To another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. We just got back from a trip visiting some of Lisa's family in Chicago, and that was really nice, but I'm frankly a little bit out of it still. Before we left on the trip, I was asking Lisa what she was really excited about, about being back in her hometown. I mean, you know, apart from seeing her family, obviously. And she said that she really wanted to get some cheese fries from Portillo's. And we did that, and they were pretty good. And she said she was looking forward to hearing the cicadas at night, that she always found that noise really soothing and comforting and reminded her of home. And I thought, Oh, that sounds really sweet. Like, kind of like I remember hearing crickets when I was a kid and thinking that was cool and very, you know, bucolic. And then I heard the cicadas. And those motherfuckers sound like somebody fed gremlins after midnight and then gave them power tools. Until it was explained to me that those were insects making those noises, I honestly thought someone was misusing a broken power washer. Anyway... We've got a special double-sized comic to cover this week, and I need to take a nap. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by James Satter. Warren is a mutant, like his pals Hank and Bobby. As alumni of the X-Men, crime fighting is their hobby. With a pair of feathered wings, just like Valkyrie's horse, Warren flies through the air as the angel, of course. Placing a halo on his chest, Warren dresses in style, plus he's got a lot of money, like our old friend Kyle. Candy Southern likes Warren, but she doesn't obsess, as we join the new Defenders in this synopsis. Thanks, James. A very timely submission. Oh, and as I said that, I realized that it sounded like a pun, and there was a Timely Comics, the company that Marvel used to be before they became Marvel character, named the Angel, but, but he's not in this issue, and I didn't mean it as a pun. I just sometimes say words funny. Defenders number 125. Or should I say, New Defenders number 125. I probably should. New Defenders, number 125. November, 1983. Hello, I must be going. Or, Mad Dogs and Elvish Men? Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inkted by Kim DeMolder. Lettered by Janice Chiang. Colored by Christy Scheel. And edited by Carl Potts and Ann Nascenti. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. Namor the Submariner. The Incredible Hulk. Silver Surfer. Valkyrie. Gargoyle. Beast. Iceman. Hellcat. Son of Satan. Angel. 
Moon Dragon, and Sassafras. Previously in the Defenders. A group of omnipotent weirdos who lived in a strange dimension beyond time and space became convinced that the original Defenders would soon be responsible for the destruction of a significant chunk of the universe. To forestall this apocalypse, the space weirdos, who called themselves the Tribunal, decided to yoink Stephen Strange, the Hulk, Namor, and the Silver Surfer out of their timeline and put them on trial for their future crimes. The Tribunal sent one of their proxies, an abrasive elf with a gun known as Elf with a Gun, to kidnap the cataclysm-causing quartet of crime fighters and take them to the future so that they could see how bad they fucked up the planet Earth. The Defenders were duly devastated to see that by the late 24th century, the Earth was a barren and desolate landscape, but were skeptical that the world's unfortunate condition was the result of their actions. So Elf with a Gun brought the incredulous heroes to the Tribunal's home dimension so that his bosses could make their case personally. After proving their omnipotence bona fides by briefly blinking the Defenders out of existence, the Tribunal showed the gang a vision of a future, wherein Steve investigates some aliens whose spaceship crashes on Earth. Future Steve spies on the visitors and learns that not only is their vessel damaged, but the alien's leader is suffering from a mysterious illness. The self-satisfied Spellslinger attempts to offer his assistance, both as a mage and an MD, but, due to a misunderstanding, he is taken captive by his would-be beneficiaries. Future the Hulk, Future Namor, and Future Silver Surfer rescue the supercilious sorcerer, giving their best effort to cause minimal damage to the StarCraft and its crew in the process, but are stunned to find that once they retrieve the kidnapped Conjurer from his holding cell, all of the aliens aboard the ship have committed mass suicide. Oh no! As the gang stood in the Tribunal's extra-dimensional courtroom, they were appropriately shaken by this chilling vision, but were still confused as to how this admittedly unfortunate incident could lead to the destruction of the planet. Meanwhile, Odin the Allfather called Valkyrie back to Asgard and asked the Aesir Amazon to do him a favor, one which somehow related to the standoffish psychic space ninja and all-around badass Moon Dragon, nay, Madame McEvil. Meanwhile, meanwhile, relative newcomer to the Defenders, the Beast, decided that he was tired of our titular non-team having no rigid internal structure, like a blimp, and would prefer it to be an actual team that had some rigid internal structure, like a Zeppelin. To achieve this goal, the Hirsute hero started trying to recruit a new team, of which he would be the leader. His first attempt at a membership drive failed to enlist any new members, but succeeded in earning the gang the enmity of a clandestine group of supervillains known as the Secret Empire. Gadzooks! Will the Tribunal succeed in destroying the Defenders? How will Beast react to his failure to secure new team members? And will I continue to use dirigible disambiguation as a metaphor for Hank's team-building philosophy? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Yes. By getting drunk. And... Yeah, probably. Elf with a gun breaks the fourth wall and addresses readers directly, monster at the end of this book style. He gives us a quick recap of the past issue. I resent this because 1. I am on record in my belief that the fourth wall is a load-bearing wall, and B. I knew Grover. Grover was a friend of mine. 
and you, Elf with a Gun, are no Grover. Anyway, once Elf with a Gun brings us up to speed, Namor, who has apparently already forgotten about the whole being blinked out of existence thing, is like, And how do we know that you tribunal assholes aren't full of shit? The main tribunal guy is like, Why don't you just ask Steve to use his magic to check us out? Steve does some magic stuff and then yells out in pain. He's like, Yes, they're on the level. The Silver Surfer is like, What was that scream all about? Are you okay? Steve is like, Oh, I'm fine. It's just that confronting the idea that there might be an entity more powerful than I am is very upsetting. You know how it is. Or at least you would if you were as great as I am. Hulk, who currently has the intelligence of Bruce Banner and talks like a big old nerd, is like, Right. Well, Tribunal, I believe you were in the process of showing us how we were culpable in the matter of the world's destruction. Carry on. The Tribunal guy is like, Okay, now where was I? Namor is like, The spaceship full of aliens had just suicided. The Tribunal guy is like, That's right. Now let me just cue the rest of this vision up. No, I don't want to go back to the main menu. Ugh. Stop trying to show me other visions you think I might like. These are all just visions I've already seen. Sorry, it'll just be a second. Ah, here we are. Chapter select. And alien suicide. There we go. The gang is thrust back into their flash forward and sees themselves confused and disturbed by the sight of the ship full of dead aliens. It turns out that the captain of the ship was the rebellious son of a murderous space emperor and was, along with the rest of his crew, fleeing his father's tyrannical rule. When the defenders busted into the ship to rescue Steve, the aliens figured that the heroes were emissaries of the evil emperor and were going to return the rebels to his clutches. The emperor was quite a torture aficionado and had gotten pretty good at it over the years so the crew had opted for a quick death rather than the long, drawn-out one that they believed awaited them. Future Steve and the rest of the future Defenders were bummed out about all the alien death, but figured there was nothing to be done about it and went home. About a hundred years later, on the other side of the universe, the evil Emperor finally got word that his hippie peacenik son was dead. He hadn't approved of his son's non-evil ways, but was still bummed out about the death. He appointed some jerkhole as his heir to the throne, and then, with tears streaming down his dickhead-shaped alien face, ordered his armada to head to Earth and destroy all life there. Fifty or so years after the launch, that's just what they did. The tribunal guy is like, And that's pretty much that. As you can see, because of you guys, the Earth is totally fucked. Also, because Emperor Dickhead appointed another jerkface as his heir instead of his hippie son, the rest of the universe isn't doing so hot either. The Defenders are aghast to learn of their role in the upcoming Armageddon. Hulk is like, Well, couldn't we just, you know, not do that stuff? Steve is like, No, dear Hulk, I'm afraid not. I took a quick peek into every possible future, including the ones that didn't even have any nasty little flame ghosts in them, which I've never done before. And it turns out that if the four of us keep hanging out together, then inevitably, 
we are going to do something that will screw over the whole universe. Silver Surfer is like, well, what if we tried really hard not to and acted more responsibly? Steve is like, I saw no possible future where I am capable of acting with that degree of self-awareness. Hulk is like, yeah, that tracks. Namor turns to the tribunal guy and is like, So I guess that's our trial, huh? Are you gonna throw us in space jail or whatever for our inevitable future crimes? The tribunal guy is like, No, we don't interfere with things. You guys are free to do whatever you want. Silver Surfer is like, What do you mean you don't interfere? Didn't you send a whole bunch of elves you created to remove people from the timeline? And then you kidnapped us and took us here? How is any of that not interfering? The tribunal guy is like, Um, our ways are ineffable and beyond your limited understanding. Namor is like, What is that supposed to mean? The tribunal guy is like, It means, shut up. And with that, the heroes find themselves teleported back to Earth. They all head over to the Sanctum Sanctimonious to figure out what to do next. Hopefully, trying to lend unwanted assistance to a crashed alien spaceship is at least moved to the bottom of the list. Meanwhile, Beast, Iceman, and Gargoyle are returning from Beast's unsuccessful attempt to recruit Wanda and the Vision to his new team. Gargoyle uses his super strength to move some parked cars and give Beast a place to land the Quinjet he has borrowed from the Avengers. On the one hand, this seems like an abuse of power, but it's also maybe the most useful display of super strength I've ever seen depicted in a comic. So, I'm going to allow it. The normally boisterous Beast is uncharacteristically glum, so he and Iceman go out drinking while Gargoyle acts as their teetotaling chaperone. When they finally return to the Defender's Brownstone a few hours later, Hank and Bobby are absolutely blotto, and Isaac is exhausted from keeping the misbehaving mutants out of trouble. They stumble through the door and are greeted by an unexpected sight. A beautiful bald woman in thigh-high boots and a green one-piece bathing suit with a billowing cape and a high Dracula collar is standing in their living room. Why, it's Moondragon! Hooray! In addition to the costume as I described it, she also has a small, thin band of metal around her forehead. Which is new. Moondragon is like, Hello, Beast. You look like crap. Beast is understandably taken aback. He keeps in fairly close touch with his former teammates on the Avengers, and is thus privy to the information that while Moondragon once fought alongside the Earth's mightiest heroes, in recent times, her arrogance and zealotry have led her to behave in a manner somewhat more consistent with supervillainy. Hank attacks his unexpected houseguest. Or at least he tries to. Beast is pretty wasted at this point, so Moondragon is more or less able to just move out of the way slightly, and the blue-furred brawler smacks face-first into a wall. Bobby ices himself up and leaps to his fuzzy friend's defense, but Moondragon zaps him with a psychic blast, and the hibernal hero crashes to the ground. Gargoyle's about to get in on the act, but Valkyrie suddenly pops in from the other room and is like, Knock it off, guys! Isaac and Moondragon knock it off. Val is like, Moondragon, why did you not tell these people that you are here as my guest? Moondragon is like, 
because if I had done that, then we couldn't have had our mandatory misunderstanding fight, could we have? Valkyrie is like, okay, but now that that's over, it's time for the mandatory exposition dump. Val explains that a little while ago, Moondragon used her psychic powers to trick the Avengers into helping her conquer a planet so that its warlike inhabitants would stop fighting. When they realized that they were being mentally manipulated, the Avengers fought back and eventually defeated the follicle-free femme fatale. In the course of the struggle, Moondragon ended up killing her dad, Drax the Destroyer, who she had also been psychically coercing. Oops. Once they had defeated her, the Avengers weren't sure what to do with Moondragon. Then somebody, probably Thor, had the bright idea that since she kept calling herself a goddess, maybe they could just toss her into Asgard and figure she was Odin's problem now. At this point, Moondragon interrupts and is like, Let me tell this part myself. Odin, in his infinite wisdom, looked into my soul and saw that while my methods may have been questionable, my goal of interstellar peace and harmony was at its core a noble one. In his compassion, he suggested that perhaps I might accompany his beloved daughter Valkyrie to Earth so that she might teach me to balance godhood and humanity as she. Ah, oh, I can't do it. Ow, 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 the stupid headband is killing me. Val is like, Moon Dragon, Odin put that slap bracelet around your head to keep you from messing with people's minds. It only hurts you when you use your powers. Were you using your telepathic powers to trick my friends into thinking that you were a nice lady? Moon Dragon is like, Of course I was using my telepathic powers to trick these idiots into thinking I'm a nice lady. How else am I supposed to make them think that I'm a nice lady? Val is like, by being nice? Moondragon is like, fuck that, fuck you, and fuck Odin. I'm going to bed. She goes upstairs to bed. Once she's gone, Beast is like, I don't like her. Val is like, eh, she's not so bad. All of this commotion has woken up the gang's long-suffering housekeeper, Dolly Donahue. Dolly is like, hey guys, I'm glad you're up. I've got something really important to tell you. Beast is like, no, I doubt that. If it were important, I'd already know it. I'm very smart. I'm going to bed now. Over Dolly's objections, Beast and Iceman head upstairs to go to bed, but are intercepted at the top of the staircase by a shirtless young man emerging from a bedroom, clad only in pajama bottoms. The attractive young man has white feathery wings growing out of his back. Wow. Seems like between this guy and Gargoyle? Dolly must really have a thing for scantily clad winged guys. Good for you, Dolly. Turns out that the shirtless winged guy is Warren Worthington III, a.k.a. Angel, Bobby and Hank's old pal from their days on the X-Men. He explains that he stopped by for a visit, but his buddies were out getting drunk, so Dolly hooked him up with a spare bedroom. Sure she did. Hank, Bobby, and Angel cavort around for a while to celebrate their reunion, until Dolly interrupts them all and is like, As I was saying, I have an important announcement. You remember how Patsy and Damon Hellstrom left the book a few issues ago so that they could go plan their wedding? 
You'll be forgiven if you don't remember, seeing as how Hub didn't mention it in the previously in the Defenders segment. But in his defense, there was a lot to cover, and he's been trying to write this synopsis while sitting on an aeroplane next to an apparently dyspeptic toddler. Oh jeez, there I go, breaking the fourth wall myself. That elf with a gun is a bad influence. Anyway, Patsy and Damon have decided to push the wedding schedule up a bit and get married in a day and a half at Patsy's dad's farm in rural Ohio. Everyone is super stoked at this news and starts dancing around and yelling about how happy they are. I mean, who wouldn't be delighted to be informed about a destination wedding on short notice? I know that sounds like a rhetorical question, but one person who seems to have at least mixed emotions about the news is Patsy's abusive asshole of an ex-husband, Buzz Baxter. Buzz has been crawling around on all fours on a ledge outside the Defender's brownstone, eavesdropping. He's wearing what looks like a shitty brown Batman costume and keeps referring to himself as Mad Dog. Huh. When he hears about the wedding, Buzz crawls off to a nearby apartment and places a FaceTime call to the Secret Empire, who I guess he's working for now. His supervillainous superiors tell Buzz that they will send him some backup to help him disrupt Patsy's wedding. The next day, Angel, Beast, and Iceman spend some quality time together, respectively flapping, jumping, and sliding around the city. Hank asks Warren what he's been up to lately, and the financially fortunate Flyboy is like, Well, let's see. I got kidnapped by some Morlocks who tied me up and put me in some bondage gear because that's kind of their thing. Their leader, Callisto, was about to make me marry her on account of I'm so beautiful, but then Storm showed up and rescued me, which was nice of her. Anyway, the kidnapping brought up a bunch of psychological shit for me about what a silly rich twerp I've been my whole life, but then I worked through all that and I'm feeling pretty great about myself these days. Beast is like, Care to elaborate about how you worked through things? Angel is like, nope. Fair enough. The three pals head back to the brownstone to meet up with the rest of the gang. While they're all hanging out in the living room, Beast is like, So I've been doing some thinking lately about how I'd like the Defenders to be more like a Zeppelin and less like a blimp. Val is like, Oh, you'd like us to be more like a conventional team and have a semi-rigid internal structure? Beast is like, exactly. Do you guys want to join this new, more codified version of a team? Everyone looks performatively thoughtful for a minute, but nobody actually answers the question. Except Moondragon, who is like, no, that seems terrible and stupid, and you're stupid for asking. Beast is like, I wasn't asking you. But he seems pretty disappointed, and the thing is, Nobody speaks up to contradict Moondragon's analysis. Harsh. The next day, everyone puts on their fanciest clothes, piles into the Quinjet, and zooms off to Ohio. During the flight, Isaac mentions that he's tried repeatedly to get in touch with Steve and the rest of the OG Defenders to invite them, but was informed by Wong that they were locked away in the Sanctum and couldn't come to the phone. When the gang arrives at the farm, Patsy warmly greets her guests and introduces them to her family. Damon's family doesn't seem to have attended, which is probably for the best. You know, because his dad's the devil. 
As the wedding attendees mingle, Buzz Baxter, in his now familiar Mad Dog outfit, lurks in the bushes outside. He uses some high-tech spy gadgets to snoop on the proceedings inside the farmhouse. The canine-costumed Crumbum starts talking to himself about how much he hates Patsy and is looking forward to ruining her wedding. But his soliloquy is interrupted by the arrival of the backup that the Secret Empire promised him. It's Mutant Force! Hi, Mutant Force! Mutant Force is a mercenary team of mutants who have tussled with our titular non-team on a number of occasions. It consists of... Peepers, who has eyeball powers. Scorcher, who shoots fire out of his hands. Slither, who is a bendy snake man. Lifter, who lifts things. And Shocker, who has lobster claws for hands. Which is pretty shocking. I think he also has electricity powers or something, but mostly he has lobster claws for hands. The team seems a little bit shorthanded, both because Shocker doesn't have hands, as I just mentioned, and because Peepers isn't with them. But they're pretty confident that they should be able to beat up all the defenders. Mad Dog jumps around and yells at everyone, insisting that he is in charge of this operation. Mutant Force is initially resistant to the idea of Buzz bossing them around, but then he crouches on a rock and howls, so they let him be the leader. I'm pretty sure that's how they chose the manager at my last job. Full disclosure, that manager was me. An indeterminate but seemingly brief amount of comic book time later, Patsy and Damon's wedding gets underway. The officiant says the thing that nobody should ever say about how if anyone has a reason why this marriage shouldn't happen, they should speak now or forever hold their peace. Naturally, Buzz and Mutant Force choose this moment to Kool-Aid Man through the wall and attack everyone because of course they do. Seriously, why would you have that be part of your ceremony? It's just asking for trouble. They may as well have the phrase, I don't see what could possibly go wrong now, written into their vows. Or, I'm so glad it's not raining. Mad Dog is like, The Secret Empire wants the Defenders taken captive, and I want to kill Patsy, so we're gonna do those things. None of the wedding guests like that plan very much. So a matrimonial melee breaks out, and everybody fights everybody. Beast is like, Okay, Everyone listen to me and do what I say. Nobody listens to Beast or does what he says. Moondragon starts karateing the shit out of Mad Dog and hits him with some mental blasts as well. But then her headband starts acting up and Mad Dog takes advantage of her distress by punching her. Apparently the Secret Empire infused him with some dog DNA which gave him claws and super strength, and also, for some reason, venomous fangs? Huh. With Moondragon out of the way, Buzz turns his attention back to his ex-wife. Patsy smacks Buzz around for a minute, which is great, but then he bites her with his dog teeth and she gets all loopy. He moves in for the kill, but Moondragon recovers just enough to zazz the delusional doggy man with a brain bolt. The effort makes the headband send waves of excruciating pain through the self-described goddess's clean-shaven head, but it also gives Damon the opportunity to KO Buzz once and for all. Meanwhile, Val makes a baseball reference, picks up a giant log, 
and knocks Lifter the fuck out. Gargoyle takes out Scorcher, Beast and his adorable puppy Sassafras beat up Slither, and Angel and Iceman use some old X-Men maneuvers to stick Shocker in a snowdrift. Once the bad guys are all out of commission, Patsy and Damon finish getting married and smooch it up. Hooray! I guess. I mean, frankly, Patsy could do a lot better, but if this is what she wants and it makes her happy, then good for her. Patsy is about to throw her bouquet when Beast decides to recenter the room's attention on him. The Azure Adventurer does a backflip and is like, So now that we all beat up some jerks together, do you guys want to revisit my whole let's be an actual team that I am the leader of idea? Val is like, Ah, oh, fuck it. Let's give this Zeppelin version of the Defenders a shot. Bobby, Warren, Isaac, and perhaps surprisingly Moondragon are all on board. They stand around posing dramatically for a second. Then Beast is like, Hey everybody, stop looking at Patsy and Damon and allow me to proudly announce the official formation of the New Defenders. From the back of the room, a familiar voice pipes up and is like, Hmm, New Defenders, you say? Interesting. Steve, Namor, Hulk, and the Silver Surfer have finally arrived at the party. Beast is like, oh, ah, uh, hey, Steve. Sorry about that. I didn't mean anything. It's just, you know, you haven't really been hanging out with the gang all that much lately, and I sort of figured that maybe... Steve cuts him off and is like, no, no, it's fine. I, I don't even give a care. It's not like it's a brand that we've built and been synonymous with for over a decade. Anyway, I just came here to tell you that the four of us are never going to be Defenders again. Goodbye! And with that, the four original Defenders, or let's face it, three original Defenders and the Silver Surfer, fly away, without even having said congratulations to Patsy and Damon. Or Hello, for that matter. As they fly off, Namor, the Hulk, and the Surfer mumble some words that could be interpreted as either vaguely encouraging of the new Defenders, or kind of passive-aggressive. I choose to think that it's the former, because to Namor, passive-aggressive normally means that he's just punching you with one fist. The end. But also... The beginning? But also the end. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, have you seen that thing on the internet about how it turns out that at the time the pyramids were built, there were still woolly mammoths alive in Siberia and northern Canada? No. Apparently that's a thing. And that is being used as a prompt to get people to think about other incongruous chronology. Have you experienced a thing recently where not a, oh, this makes me feel old type thing, but a kind of, I can't believe that these two things, which I think of as belonging to very separate eras, were happening at the same time? Nothing comes to mind. I'm sure I have. But, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, nothing's really jumping out at me. What do you got? I watched the final episode of Columbo last night. Oh, man. You want to guess what year it came out? 1992? Later. 
95. Later. 2000? Later. What? Came out in 2003 and Columbo solved a murder at a rave. (laughs) That is a good example of one of those things. That is a pyramid to your woolly mammoth. Yeah, it really is kind of freaking me out. So I had to read this comic with an already blown mind, which I think was maybe the right attitude to go into it with. You want to talk about this comic book? That's why we're here. Indeed it is. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I'll start by saying it was kind of a lot. It was a whole lot. I'm curious to what extent that is the result of, like, a corporate mandate that they had to get these changes underway and they had to do them quickly, because it did seem like kind of a rush and kind of a jumble of things. There was definitely a lot of stuff in it that I liked, but yeah, there was, in my mind, not just a lot, but too much going on. I liked where it ended, though, and I'm excited about what's going to come. I just wish that there was a little bit more space to breathe within the comic book. I think the the thing I didn't really appreciate about it was the sort of uh, deus ex break up the team device. I mean, it's a concise way to be like, hey, you guys can't be the defenders anymore or the world's going to blow up. It's kind of concise, but it takes you on a long and winding path to get to what ends up being a pretty concise thing that also doesn't make a ton of sense. Like, if the four of you continue to work together, things are going to be fucked. Okay, well, what if we don't do this one thing that you just showed us? And Doctor Strange is like, no, I checked every timeline possible, and it turns out that even if we don't do this thing, if the four of us hang out together, we're gonna fuck up big and blow up the universe. Here's the thing about that, even if you take that as given, why don't they just say, okay, Silver Surfer, I guess we won't call you next time there's trouble. He was only there for, like, three or four of their adventures over, like, the past 130 issues. Yeah, he was there the first time that they teamed up, like, before they were actually called the Defenders, but he's only appeared sporadically since then, so it would seem like the easiest solution to that would be like, well, guess you can't hang out with us anymore, Silver Surfer, sorry about that, and I don't think he'd be that bummed to hear that. Or do, like, a rock, paper, scissor thing when it was time to have an adventure. Mm Mm-hmm. Be like, okay, somebody's gonna be out. Except Steve, because he would refuse to That's true. And probably Namor would, too. And maybe the Hulk. Yeah, I think your original <laughs> assessment is probably probably the best. Although it is also weird to see Namor be like, what do you mean we can't all hang out and adventure together anymore? When, after every time they have had an adventure, he has been like, fuck you guys, I'm never showing up again. Yeah, that is true. I gotta say I'm sad. Like... We spend a lot of time talking shit about Steve, but I am really going to miss talking shit about Steve. I am too, and I feel like the original Defenders team gets kind of short shrift in this issue. Like, I want them to have their moment, you know? It seems really anticlimactic that the team breaks up with them, not even the tribunal demanding that they break up, but the tribunal being like, well, it's really up to you guys, you know. Whatever you decide is fine with us. You can think of what your own punishment should be. Pretty much, yeah. I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. (laughs) You guys want to destroy your own planet and kill everybody, you know, that's on you. That's fine, we're not going to interfere except 
to the tremendous extent that we have already interfered and shown no compunctions about doing so. Do you think that... I couldn't tell from the end if the elves are going to continue to narrate this thing or be part of it. I'm hoping not. I am hoping not to. I kind of get why that was the case in this one, and it worked, I think, as well as it could have. I think this issue did need a narrator because there was so much happening and so much of it didn't really connect. And having it be the elf with a gun in some ways excuses some of the disjointedness because it's like, oh, that's the way he's telling this story. Because of the enormous um, blunt that he is <laughs> puffing on the entire issue? Yeah, but also because he's elf with a gun and he's, you know, shown to be kind of a non-sequitur character in general. Yeah, I hope he's not going to continue narrating the new Defenders, and I don't suspect that he is. As I said, I feel like the original Defenders, not just the original Defenders lineup of the OG4, but the original Defenders as a team concept doesn't really get a ton of respect in this issue narratively. And I think a lot of that is exemplified by Patsy's Wedding should get its own issue. And I felt really ripped off on her behalf. It's her wedding, and she gets like half of a moment in this comic book. I feel like this would have worked better if it was spread out over like two or three issues, maybe, at least. And then we would have had a little bit more breathing space. But I don't know. It, it felt really anticlimactic. So I also, I get that Steve is humbled by the tribunal, and, you know, he doesn't want to be responsible for destroying the planet and everything. But... I've got to think that he would not have handled beasts offhand. Oh, shit. Uh, sorry, man. I took your team and I'm the leader now, but like, I totally should have asked you. And Steve's like, oh, it's cool. Well, he does say, oh, it's cool, but he does say it as he is turning his back and flying away. There's a lot about this issue that really didn't work. That being said, I am excited about seeing the new Defenders lineup, and I think it is a fun lineup. But the issue that got us there. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of going on a car trip with my grandfather, especially in his later years. My grandfather put himself through medical school by driving a taxi in Boston. And as he got older, the skill and the reflexes weren't really there, but the aggressive driving style and confidence in his abilities definitely was. And so whenever he would drive us somewhere, like if it was me and my sister, he would turn around and tell us Greek myths while he was driving, and, you know, be not looking at the road while he did so. So it was kind of terrifying. And this issue has some elements of that. Like, it is uh, a story that is told without a ton of subtlety. The twists and turns kind of come out of nowhere. The route it takes doesn't make a ton of sense. But then at the end, I like where it took us. He was at least, like, out for ice cream or something. Yeah, that's a good analogy. To me, it reminded me of, and I don't know if there's a, a name for this comedic device, but like those really, really long jokes mm -hmm. that like you laugh at the end almost just because you're so relieved that, you know, the parrot dropped the brick and it's over or whatever. Right. Yeah. Shaggy dog story type. Mm -hmm. This sort of had that feel to it. So on one hand, yes, it would have been nice to split it up over several issues. Mm -hmm. But at its core, I mean, it's just basically, okay, if you guys stay a team, Earth ends. We need a new team. Mm -hmm. Here you go. Yeah. As a launching point for the new Defenders, fine. 
as a farewell to the old defenders, I feel kind of ripped off. This was a team that lasted 125 issues. And if nothing else, this issue should be the last issue that is called The Defenders instead of the first issue that's called The New Defenders. It seems a little bit disrespectful, especially because there are elements that you can see how they could have wrapped it up and given the old team more of a moment. Have them have a chance to say goodbye to each other, rather than the original four Defenders showing up for a page at the end and saying like, Oh, I heard you say that we're old news. Well, I guess you're right, and I don't resent it. Goodbye. Total lie. Oh, he totally resented it. Yep. So, how is the housing situation going to work out? I'm fuzzy on that. So, Richmond gave Patsy and a bunch of other people a house to hang out at. Mm-hmm. But Val and others were still hanging out at the Sanctum? Is that right? No. Overmindy was still hanging out at the Sanctum, and that is one of the loose ends that is not even addressed in this issue. They went through great lengths to tie up some loose ends that were left like 40 or 50 issues ago, and then had a major addition to the team not only not show up in this issue, but not show up at Patsy's wedding, which seems shitty. In terms of the housing situation, I think that is going to get addressed later. I know that they do have a change of location at some point, but You're right that there is a kind of unresolved thing happening here because the house had mostly been left to Patsy and Valkyrie and Isaac, I believe. Mm -hmm. They were the core team that had worked with Nighthawk who had the house left to them. Patsy is moving out. She is going to go live with Damon. She has said that she's going to take Dolly Donahue with her. I would like there to be more of a moment between Dolly Donahue and Gargoyle who have been dating for a little while, it seems like, at this point. Neither of them have even addressed the fact that Dolly is not going to be with them anymore, which is sad. Granted, Isaac probably should have by this point brought up the fact that he hospitalized her by blowing up a house that she was standing in. But other than that, they had a pretty cute relationship, and seems like one that at least warrants a discussion. Like, I'm not saying that she should move in with Gargoyle, but... If they are going to part ways, it seems like somebody should be at least like, so are we going to try to make this work long distance? Or, I don't know. I know it's a new relationship, but it does seem like they should at least talk about it. With the whole house blowing up thing, too, that's like several years down the road, if they stay together, it's going to be, you know, that's going to be one of those things that just comes up. He's like, yeah, like that one time I dropped the house on me. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, just, I, I, the, <clears throat> that that's a metaphor. Yeah. What the, it's the slang the kids are using. You know, I've been hanging out with Patsy. It's uh, that means that I, I I smooched you real good. I really dropped a house on you. <laughs> Gosh, there is so much to talk about in this issue because so much does happen. Let's just dive in, talk a little bit about the story that ostensibly dissolves the original Defenders. I felt like this story was one part that was a little bit too complicated and didn't need to be. At the end of the last issue, we find out that the spaceship full of aliens all killed themselves. This issue, we find out that the reason they did that was because they assumed that the OG Defenders were in league with that spaceship leader's dad, who was part of an empire, and that they would all be taken home and tortured to death. Okay, 
it seems odd that they would all reach that same conclusion en masse, but I guess, plausible. Then we get this whole other story from the alien asshole dad's perspective, where he loved his renegade son and tried to teach him to be a total asshole, but the kid rejected that, and so he killed all of the guy's previous crews, but the guy put together a new crew, and then they escaped, and were gonna be good guys, I guess. And when the dad finds out that they were killed, he's really sad, because he still loved his son, even though his son wasn't a big enough asshole. Even though he was trying to kill his son. Well, I think he was trying to kidnap his son and kill all his son's friends, maybe. Oh, that's right, that's right. So then he installs a new leader who's an even bigger asshole and blows up all the kid's stuff and every picture of him and erases him from existence and then decides that he wants to go to Earth because even though he was at odds with his son and opposed to him politically and wanted to kidnap him and torture all of his friends, he still loved him and wanted revenge, so he's going to blow up the Earth. But it's going to take him 200 years or something. Uh Uh-huh. And then he does, and he goes and he puts bad poison gas out. And everybody dies. And that's the end of us. Yep. Because Lord knows the Marvel Universe has never been able to successfully fend off an alien invasion. Mm-hmm. Certainly not the sort of thing that happens every three goddamn issues. Anyway, all that's fine. My main takeaway from that story was, if you're gonna make your aliens look like they have penis heads for a head, then you can't make them cry. <laughs> Because there are a couple of close-ups of the asshole alien dad, and he does look like a mustachioed penis that has just come on itself. Oh, no. We're going to show you the picture. Not a great look. Oh. (laughs) Like, I noticed it a little bit in the last issue, but in this issue, it is aggressively clear that these guys have penis heads for heads. Yeah, real dickhead. Indeed. So that's my main takeaway from the Defender story. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to miss these guys. I wish we had gotten more of a goodbye. I definitely wish that Valkyrie had gotten more of a goodbye. She was an integral part of that team for 120 issues. Like, she worked alongside of those guys. She was really close friends with them. And they are totally dismissive of her when they say goodbye. They're like, well, you new guys have fun with this team. Valkyrie was part of the old team forever. And not only does she not get any respect from them, she also kind of doesn't get a ton of respect from Beast, who is still like, oh, you arrogant hothead, rushing off and doing your own thing. Yeah, and she's also kind of charged with being Moondragon's, I don't know, babysitter's not the right word, but her moral watchdog. I mean, kind of her babysitter in a lot of ways. Odin really only seems to have one punishment for his kids, and that's, well, fuck it, you're going to Earth. He's done that with Valkyrie twice, he's done it with Thor at least twice, and uh, now he is given someone else who needs to be punished and humbled uh, in the form of Moondragon, and he's like, uh, Midgard? Sure, that's really the only arrow in my punishment quiver. But he is like, hey Valkyrie, as a way of me saying sorry for banishing you to Earth, you're in charge of someone else who I've banished to Earth. Not a great look for Odin. It isn't. But you know who does look great? Moondragon. Mm-hmm. I like Moondragon a lot. I think she is exactly what this new team needs. We have certainly had assholes on the team before, but 
I don't know that we've had assholes that the book knew were assholes. Hmm. And I love that from Moondragon. I love her arrogance. I love that we get peeks at the fact that she's not really so bad, though, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, she really cares about Patsy. She really wants to rescue her. She'll put herself in danger to do it. We've seen her a little bit in the pages of the Defenders before. Not a ton. But uh, what are your thoughts on Moondragon? Yeah, similar to what you said, you know, Namor is just going to leave a, a, a gaping ego vacuum mm. on the team. So glad you went with ego vacuum after I had specifically been calling her an asshole. <laughs> Once you started the sentence with gaping, I was uh, very, very concerned. Chose my words carefully after after the adjective. Um, but yeah, so I, it's going to be good to have somebody that's got that big ego mm-hmm. on the team. That's always fun. I don't know about how long it's going to take us to get really tired of having an incredibly powerful character that's hobbled by a plot device in the form of this headband that says, like, you can use some, but not all of your powers. And I feel it's going to become pretty inconsistent. I think you're probably right. I think it'll be probably a little bit less frustrating for me than having a potentially omnipotent character who is hobbled for different reasons throughout the course of the series or just through hand wave reasons i don't know we've seen that happen with steve to a certain extent where he has to be like oh no now i'm not supposed to teleport or it will blow up the planet except for i'm still gonna teleport all the time but sometimes i'll say i can't you know Mm -hmm. at least she has a consistent thing that is holding her back from her full potential i think we're already starting to see in the new titans Donna is ostensibly more powerful and has a whole new power set. And in every issue since she has shown up, she has either had to make an excuse as to why she's not going to be with the team or been knocked unconscious for it. We saw that happening with Kid Flash a lot of times. And I like having a built-in reason for it. I think you're right, it probably will get old. But I like the headband. I think it looks cool on her. It looks very 80s. Mm -hmm. And, uh... I like the character. She is a weird one. She has been through a lot of different changes since she first showed up on the Avengers and was calling herself Madame McEvil and hanging around with Daredevil. Frankly, wish she would have stuck with the moniker Madame McEvil. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the last time we saw her in The Defenders, she was still ostensibly a hero, I believe. A little bit arrogant, but still firmly on the good guys team. She was an Avenger... And then had some kind of a mix-up where... Do you remember the desk centaur guy that... Oh, yeah. The Defenders teamed up with the Guardians of the Galaxy and Steve had to punch out and realized he was great at punching and magic? Mm -hmm. That guy ended up being like an omnipotent future god type guy who was named Michael Korvac and killed all of the Avengers except for Moondragon and then... Right before he eviled himself to death, he brought them all back to life because he felt bad and thought they were neat. And she was the only person who remembered that and made her lose a lot of respect for the original Avengers team. And then she was like, she just kind of fucked off to space for a while. And then the next time they saw her, she had used her mind control to take over a planet that was super warlike and make them be all peaceful. But she had taken away all of their free will. and she brought the Avengers in to help her subdue a rebellion on that planet. 
And then they figured out what she was up to, and they're like, oh, you suck. And her dad was like, oh, and you've been mind-controlling me, too. Her dad is Drax, the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. You know, Dave Bautista from the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And she killed him. He tries to kill her. She kills him. Yeah, it was Bad. a whole, whole to-do. Mm. So she's been through some shit. And that was when the Avengers were like, well, we got her stopped. Um, she says she's a god, so I guess we'll just shove her off to Asgard and yeah. let her be their problem. And then they, uh, Odin was like, well, you have to wear a snap bracelet on your head. And uh, go to Midgard. And go to Midgard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where she's at. Welcome addition to the team, in my mind. Not the only addition to the team we get in this issue. Angel. What do you think of Angel? Man, at first when he showed up, I was like, oh, what a bozo. But his backstory got interesting really quickly with that. Callisto. Callisto, yeah, capturing him and being like, you're so beautiful, I'm going (laughs) to marry you. Putting him in what looks like one of Gargoyle's old outfits. (laughs) Yeah, and like one of those weird like bondage cross things. Uh Uh-huh. And then he's like, oh, then, you know, Storm rescued me, which was nice of her. Yeah, he's been through a lot. I mean, I think anybody who's on the X-Men has been through a lot by the mid-80s. I like that, A, he was forthcoming about, like, I had this this fucked up experience and it really screwed me up, and B, I'm not going to talk about it anymore right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Good for you. Yeah, good for him indeed. When he did first show up, I was super confused because Dolly Donahue comes downstairs in her nightgown and her fashion turban and is like, you guys, I have something important to tell you. And nobody listens to her, which I found very frustrating. And then half-naked Warren comes down from upstairs, and I was like, whoa, good for you, Dolly. Uh Did you have the same thought? Yeah, actually, I was, do you have a new friend you need to introduce (laughs) us to? Kind of seems like. And then after Beast and Iceman, who are wasted. Which is funny, we don't often see our heroes. No. Inebriated. No, and I really did enjoy that. But then they have their little party with Angel. I think the introduction of him into the book, where it's just like, it's the same way that Iceman did. He's like, oh, I showed up for a visit with no motivation behind it or anything. And then, well, since he's here, I guess I'll join the team. Mm-hmm. Seemed a little bit too convenient. He also very much seems like he is going to be, in some ways, the new Nighthawk. Hopefully a better Nighthawk. But... You get a winged super richo who is realizing that he's been a spoiled fuck-up his whole life. Seems pretty familiar territory for a defender. Yeah, but he basically says, I figured that out, and I went and I did some stuff I feel great about. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I no longer feel like a fuck-up. <laughs> yeah, Where I guess. I feel like we never got that from Kyle. We <laughs> always got him being like, someday I won't be such a fuck-up. But I'm such a fuck-up. Yeah. I guess that's a good point. The timing of this is interesting. The adding the new to the Defenders and the adding three X-Men. Three of the original X-Men, in fact. It's a pretty high percentage of the team. I'm wondering to what extent the idea was having this book be almost an extension of the X-Men line. Because... 83 is when you first see the X line of comics be expanded. It's when the New Mutants got added as a title. And that was the first X-Men real spinoff book that you had. And at the time, the two biggest selling books, I think, for Marvel, it was the X-Men by a mile. And for DC, it was the New Teen Titans 
by a mile. Mm. And so when you add the new mutants mm. to the X-Men line, and then you have the new Defenders show up a few months later, it makes you wonder how much of that was calculated and how much this was supposed to be part of the X family of books, or at least create that impression to potential customers. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask you about, because I, I don't really remember, you know, what was on the comic stands and, and such in 1983. But now, with Marvel Studios and the folks that are in the Defenders being such popular characters, it's weird to have this happen where it does feel like them, like this is Marvel saying, well, people don't really care about the Hulk or Doctor Strange as yeah. much anymore, so we're going to replace them with angels and gargoyles. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it does seem like an odd move, but I think that was kind of what was happening at the time. You had previously had, I think, Angel and Iceman were on a team called the Champions, and that team didn't last very long. It was a weird hodgepodge team that was, oh, we got some characters that aren't really doing anything, so... Now there's a team that's Hercules, two former X-Men, Black Widow, and Ghost Rider. They're a team. Whoa. Yeah. Crew. Very much so. And so to an extent, I think it's, hey, we have these characters who aren't doing anything right now. Let's put them in this book that isn't doing anything, and I don't know, maybe it'll catch on. But where the X-Men were so popular, you also have it maybe it, it is a more calculated thing than that. I don't know, but I do think it's an interesting set up for a team. Yeah. I'm curious to see Beast's leadership style, because he's such a goof, usually. It seems like a weird choice. It seems like a weird choice, especially where you do have Valkyrie right there, who has led a group of superheroes before, who has been part of this team for 120 issues. You think it's got to be at least a little bit demoralizing for her that they aren't promoting from within, you know? Mm-hmm. Seems kind of disrespectful to her. That being said, I love her in this issue. I love when she talks about baseball and hits part of mutant force out of the park with a log that's lying around. I love that she is casually carving a Viking head out of a block of wood in one scene. I was very pleased to see mutant force show up as a bunch of goofy bad guys. But where's Peepers? All of Mutant Force, except for Peepers, shows up in this issue. He is nowhere to be found. Ate some bad grapes. Maybe. Maybe he's just hanging back at the Secret Empire's headquarters, just eating grapes. Mm -hmm. That is something that also doesn't quite add up from what we were given before. We learned in the last issue that the secret government meeting that wasn't really a government meeting that Mutant Force and Buzz Baxter and Jack fucking Norris all testified at was held by the tribunal. Mm -hmm. And then in this issue, all of those guys, with the exception of Jack fucking Norris, are now aligned with the Secret Empire. It seems like the Secret Empire was an organization that existed within the government and was a secret organization that was taking them down from the inside. And now all of those guys are affiliated with them. Why wouldn't that just be the secret empire and not the tribunal? You ask a good question. Thank you. You're welcome. What did you think of Mad Dog as a new villain? Um, I guess I would say... That's largely my feeling about him as well. Also, seems like a weird time to introduce him as a new villain 
as Patsy's leaving the book, and he is so clearly set up as a foil for her. I think that would make more sense if you had a standalone wedding issue, that he would be the bad guy for that issue. But we get like a few wedding pages in this, which is weird because part of what would have made sense about the old Defenders ending with a wedding issue would be the Defenders has always, to my mind, worked best when it was a superhero workplace comedy. That was definitely what it was under Gerber, and that's what various writers have brought to the Defenders and what made it kind of a unique book. And traditionally, a sitcom will end with a wedding. Mm -hmm. And so you have the opportunity to end it with a wedding, which it kind of does, but so little of the focus is on the wedding, which just didn't sit quite right. And you bring in this villain who is specific for Hellcat. I mean, not only is he her ex-husband, but he is also Mad Dog instead of Hellcat. It just seems weird in terms of timing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's maybe a symptom of trying to just cram too much into the book. Yeah. I get the idea this is issue 125 and you want momentous things to happen on the quarter century marks, you know? Mm -hmm. Like issue 25, 50, 75 are traditionally the big issues. But I think the final issue of The Defenders would be a big issue, and you don't need to combine that with the first issue of The New Defenders. But back to Mad Dog. I was confused when I first saw him, not only because of the timing of the introduction of him, but because I was like, why does the name Mad Dog sound familiar? And I finally figured out what it was. We talked about sitcoms ending with a wedding. Mad Dog was actually a character from a sitcom that had a Marvel tie-in. What? Yeah. In the early 90s, it only ran for two seasons, and the comic book tie-in was only for one of those seasons. But Bob Newhart starred in a sitcom <laughs> called Bob. Okay. Naming convention makes sense. His first sitcom was called The New Bob Newhart Show. Right. Uh -huh. The second sitcom was called Newhart. Uh -huh. So what's left? Bob. Bob. And its premise was so inside baseball for the comic book industry and so era-specific for it that it blew my mind as I was recalling it and being like, wait, is that really what it was? And I looked it up. It was. The premise of the show, Bob, was that Bob Newhart's character was a comic book artist who had created a character in the 50s called Mad Dog, hmm. right before the Comic Code Authority drove so many smaller comic book publishers out of business. So he created a Silver Age hero, and then the company that he was working for was put out of business by the Comic Code Authority. He went to work at a greetings card company, and he worked there until the 90s, and then a new publisher bought the rights to the character Mad Dog and wanted to reboot him as a grim and gritty, vigilante, bloodthirsty hero in the very extreme early 90s style of Rob Liefeld. Mm. And so they wanted to buy the rights from Bob Newhart, and he wouldn't sell it unless he got to be the artist, and so it was about him struggling within the industry to have a Silver Age hero not be too corrupted by the forces of extreme comic book art of the 90s. How did that get made? That it, is amazing to it, me. It only lasted a season, 
with that premise, and then for the second season, somebody bought the comic book company and everybody got fired, and for the second season, he's just working in a greetings card company, and the whole supporting cast is gone, which was like, yeah, it was like his best friend was an inker or something, like, it was like all, like, very Mm -hmm. industry-specific. It is amazing to me that it got made, too, but... Marvel published a six-issue Mad Dog, which was the name of the character, miniseries that was a book that was split in two with half of the art being Silver Age Mad Dog and half of the art being Dark 90s Vigilante Mad Dog. For the Silver Age half of the book, the art was by an artist named Ty Templeton, who has a very clean-looking kind of Silver age style. And for the second half of the book, it was Evan Dorkin, who did Milk and Cheese, doing a kind of parody of oh. the more, like, Rob Liefeld, Mark Silvestri style. Wow. And I haven't read those books. I kind of need to track them down. But when I heard the name Mad Dog, I was like, whoa. So does that indicate Bob Newhart is a comic fan? Not necessarily. I think somebody pitched the idea to him, probably. So whoever created the show was clearly a comic book fan. But, like, all of those details and being so, like, era-specific and rooted in comic book history and present i can't believe this happened in 1992 yeah and its lead-in show was golden palace which was a golden girl spin-off which happened after b arthur had left the show you know why b arthur had left the show hmm. well because she didn't get along with any of the other golden girls and she didn't want to be part of it anymore but the in-story reason for her character leaving was because the Golden Girls ended with a wedding, because of course it did, because it was a fucking sitcom. She married Leslie Nielsen, and they moved off together. All right. Also, Leslie Nielsen, his character was Blanche's uncle. I'm speechless. I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with the comic book, and there's already way too much to talk about in this, but there was a Golden Girls tie, and I'm going to talk about the Golden Girls if I can talk about the Golden Girls. That you are. Mm Mm-hmm. Rue McClanahan was in an issue of Columbo that I watched recently. How about that? She got murdered by Patrick McGowan. Oh, no. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, uh, one more thing. (laughs) Well played, Corey. Thank you. So, while many aspects of this book did not, in my mind, capture the epic feeling that the conclusion of the Defenders, as we know them, should have. One thing about it that truly felt epic and gorgeous is the cover. And how? I think this is probably my favorite Defenders cover we have seen. It might be my favorite cover, with the possible exception of some of the Nick Cardi early stuff for the original Teen Titans series that we've ever seen in a book that we've covered. It is so good. It really tells you you're getting something new, mm-hmm. too. Like, not only is the logo changed from the old-style one to the, when it has the words, the new Defenders, but just the whole thing. It's like, okay, now we have what feels like a more modern comic. Yeah, it is illustrated by Bill Sienkiewicz in a collaboration with the editor of this book, Carl Potts. So, yeah, the, the new editor of the book is an artist who I had not been that familiar with his work. I looked some of it up. He does really good work, but I love the way he works with Bill Sienkiewicz on this. I just can't say enough good stuff about this cover. It is really cool looking, and you get the whole team on it, and they look great. And the past few covers of this title have been amazing. Yeah, I love the painterly quality of it, but then also that at least all the characters in the foreground have this thick outline 
around them. It just makes everything really pop. It's a great graphic quality. It absolutely says new and interesting, and we are taking this in a different direction. I like that it shows how scary Beast can be too, right? Because we're used to thinking of him as just sort of a goof. Mm-hmm. But he's furry and sharp clawed and, you know, like a wild animal. And yeah. He, he looks like he's about to fuck you up on the it's cover. Re- it's really playing up his uh, Wolverine haircut too. Uh-huh. It is weird that I don't think anybody in the world has ever had that actual haircut, but you have at least two very prominent X-Men who have that haircut. Mm-hmm. Corey, there is so much more to talk about in this comic book, but I think everything else is probably going to come up in the minutia, or just won't come up, because, you know, yeah, let's it only do it. fits so much spaghetti into the container. That's what they say. Mm-hmm. Very popular <laughs> phrase. Yep. I've been watching infomercials, and people try to put spaghetti away. You... I was trying to put too much spaghetti in a container, and it spills out everywhere. Oh, no. There's got to be a better way. Rick, will you sing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting off with? Would you like to talk about words? Can we? Let's. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie, were that pie not? made out of steel. I often like to choose a segment where I've learned a new word, mm-hmm. and I learn a new word in this segment. I also like it because it's kind of a charming scene where it's dialogue at Patsy's wedding as Beast and Patsy are dancing together, and it's just, it just has a lighthearted feel to it. She's got her bouquet of flowers in one hand, Beast has his tray of maybe fried chicken in the other hand, and he's saying, Patsy, ah, my dear, mere language is too limited a tool to do justice to your pultritude. To which she replies, You really know how to lay it on thick, don't you, Hank? I do, don't I? I had to look that word up. means pretty. That's a good one. Yeah. I liked that, too. There's a lot of very good dialogue in this, in part just because there is so much dialogue in this. There is a lot. Uh, A lot of it coming in the form of exposition from the tribunal, you know, before they decide, we're just going to fuck off now forever. Bye. But my favorite dialogue, I think, came from Moondragon. And it's not the most ornate speech. But I love how character-defining it is, and that it is established right at the outset. Beast comes downstairs, he's drunk, he sees Moondragon standing there, he says, Moondragon! And she says, Good morning, Beast. I would say that you're looking well, but you are not. <laughs> Zing! Zing! It's so matter-of-fact, totally encapsulates her character, like, just like, she doesn't take any nonsense. And she's kind of a dick about it. But she's also not wrong. When he says that, too, he's got those little, um, how do you even describe that? Little, like, puffs of drunkenness, like, that they draw around somebody to say that they're, like, effervescent? I always call them boozles, which which I think I got from Bloom County. But yeah, no, he's got the little boozles around his head. My other favorite dialogue is on page 23 when Beast is proposing that they form a new team and nobody seems too keen on the idea at first. Moondragon's response is, Moondragon has no intention of joining such an absurd aggregation. And the, the way that she's drawn when she says that is the picture matches the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she looks very haughty mm-hmm. in that. 
I just love Moon Dragon. I think she's a lot of fun in this issue. Me too. Well, let's get this out of the way. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender, or I suppose a best new defender, and also a worst offender. Worst new offender? I don't know, that doesn't work as well. Anyway, it's got each of them. In this issue, who is the best, who is the worst? Well, this may be a little bit controversial for several reasons, but for best, I went with Steve. It's probably mostly misplaced preemptive nostalgia, if I'm being <laughs> honest. Yeah. I'm really going to miss giving that guy trouble. But also, A, he was the one who verified, because both Namor and Hulk were just like, whoa, 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 you know, slow your roll, tribunal. <laughs> like, you have yeah. no proof that we destroyed everything. And they're like, Steve, you can come check us out. And he's like, oh, yes, I can. And he goes and he does and it blows his mind. And he goes back and he tells his buddies, hey, sorry, but we're going to have to break up the band. Mm. You know, and it sucks, but he does it. I wonder if this is the first example of Steve scanning all possible futures and seeing negative outcomes. Because that's something he does, I feel like, a feral mount in the MCU. Yeah, yeah. I had that thought as well when I read that. I was like, oh, that's where they got that. I did all the math. Yeah, I can understand your choice of Steve, and I am definitely going to miss having Steve to kick around anymore. But I couldn't quite give him the nod as best defender, because his choice to disband the team didn't actually make a ton of sense, rather than, you know, just asking Silver Surfer to stay at home. Hub, he's seen all the futures. Yeah, has he, though? Or did he just scan all the futures he looking said, for his name? He said he scanned <laughs> all the futures, so... Everyone where he was involved, yes. <laughs> Fair enough. But he also doesn't show up at Patsy's wedding until the very end, after she has gotten married, just shows up to say, I just came here to say we're not coming, basically, and then goes home. And he and the rest of the original Defenders, they all get exempted from best status because they all showed up at Patsy's wedding in their regular crime-fighting gear. Okay. In my and Steve's defense, one of the criteria for best defender was does something that is necessary to move the story forward. I don't think that was ever part of the criteria for best defender. That would be uh, part of the criteria for being the sucker. So based on that criteria. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No Steve wedding crashing, thunder stealing. No new defenders happen. Okay. You're right. I, Fair enough. I screwed that up. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot we used to have that criteria. In his defense in that regard, I think that in the superhero universe, it has been established that crime fighting costumes do count as uniforms, and it is acceptable to wear dress uniforms to formal events. Is it really? Yeah. Man, I feel like we should get some dress uniforms. I don't know. Maybe we'll be a firefighter. Oh, they have dress uniforms? Yeah, probably. Wow. I think that's probably the uniform that I would be most comfortable stealing Valor from. I don't know, what about the Coast Guard? Yeah. I don't know, I feel like they probably do more than I realize. Oh. So, like, a sea captain? Oh! Okay, maybe if we could wear sea captain uniforms, I'm totally into getting sea captain uniforms. Something with a lot of, uh, what those things? Epaulets? Mm-hmm. Like a, a nice, like, tailored dress yellow rain slicker and a uh, and some epaulets and one of those hats 
Oh, yeah, little, yeah. Little, Gotta like have a, the hat. Fisherman's hat. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know, a corncob pipe that has a little bow tie on it. Ah! This is a good outfit. Oh, man, we are gonna kill it at the, uh... What's the awards you get to dress up for? Academy Awards? Yeah, probably that, or, I don't know, if you guys want to invite us to a wedding. <laughs> yeah, when we get nominated for Best Podcast. <laughs> and when we win the, the, Academy, Oscar the Oscar. The Oscar, that's for, it. Yeah, when we Oscars. win the Oscar for Best Podcast. Yeah. That we should totally dress in our formal sea captain wear. And we're going to look good. Yeah. Have I sufficiently distracted you from why you don't like my choice of Doctor Strange? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you had. Well done. Thank you. I don't remember now, so it's probably a great choice. Thanks. I had as my best defender a, a tie between Moondragon. Just because Moondragon's fucking awesome. And she actually does a very good job in this issue. She does. I love how she took out Mad Dog to the extent that she could. His fervor kind of counteracts the limits of her mind control abilities given her little magic headband. But she subdues him to the point that Damon can beat him up. Which is nice, although really that should have been Patsy beating him up. I felt very uneasy about having it be a thing where, no, Damon can come to her rescue. No, she can rescue herself. It, it is set up as her nemesis, then having her husband needs to protect her, despite the fact that he lost all of his powers and she's Hellcat. Seemed kind of bullshitty, you know? But Moondragon did a great job punching him in the face, mm-hmm. kicking him in the crotch, and then using her mind control powers on him. Very satisfying. I also really, really enjoyed the scene. This may not qualify her as the best, but when she is telling her side of the story to the new Defenders, and she just starts using her mind control to make them like her, and she's like, ah, I'm getting a really bad headache. And Valkyrie's like, are you using your mind control to make us like you? And she's like, of course I'm using my mind control to make you like me. I really liked that. She was just my favorite part of the issue, so she was my choice. Valkyrie was my backup because she also does a really great job Mm -hmm. and does a nice job carving a Viking head out of a block of wood for no apparent reason. Good that she's got a hobby. Leads me to believe that she did her own home decor Mm -hmm. when we saw how Mm -hmm. rad her bedroom is set up with the Viking longship race car bed that she sleeps in. Yeah. And she, uh, yeah, she hits a home run with the lifter with uh, her log baseball bat yeah that was definitely on my short list she was so much fun mm-hmm. this issue and also she stood up to moon dragon yeah i am nervous about the position that she is being put in in this comic book we see in some ways she is still being defined as the i don't know hot tempered woman who runs off and doesn't think things through and doesn't listen to beast quote leadership unquote but we also see that she is being set up as moon dragon's I don't know, role model slash jailer slash... I'm worried it's going in the direction of, well, she's the most traditional-looking woman on the team, so she has kind of a mom role on the team. And I feel like that is a role that is really not well-suited to Valkyrie. And I don't like the idea of, I don't know, seeing her be established as the team mom. I don't know, we'll see where that goes. It's just something I'm a little bit worried about. Yeah, my mind did not even go there. Like, I can't imagine. Can you, like, it just doesn't, that doesn't. I can totally see them doing I can see them her. doing that, but I can't see the way that I think of Val doing that. Right. And that is my problem if yeah. they do try to force her into that role. Ooh. 
But we don't know that they Imaginary are. situation. Right. Boom. right. I'm furious at this scenario that I've created in my head. Uh, man, speaking of being able to defend your partner, I had a, a funny thing earlier today, Tina and I were having conversation about something and I... I went, ah, and I jumped because there were some balloons left over from my birthday that were behind me. <laughs> what are you, a horse? <laughs> and I saw them out of the corner of my eye and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and yeah, then we were joking about how I <laughs> lost any shred of like <laughs> masculine protective ability because I'm frightened of balloons. Well, they, well in my defense, they, they, they were scary. Balloons. They were very tall and they were moving. You're only human. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about those? Uh, Weird guys that wave their arms in the air in front of car dealerships. I think those are kind of funny. Oh, those are just kind of like giant, very tall balloons, though. Yeah, well, see, the thing is, I didn't know that this was balloons. I just, there was movement, and, okay. and it was in the, my periphery, and it was tall, because the balloons were on a thing on a shelf. So I thought there was something very tall moving near me. That's fair. Ominously rustling. One of the dispensaries near my house has some of those wavy, noodly men out front. Mm-hmm. It's weird to see that. Yeah. Kind of cool, though. Yeah, man, those guys are high. Yeah. They love to party. <laughs> it kind of makes more sense in that context than it does with a car dealership, because I have seen hippies dance that way. <laughs> yeah, and it's probably cheaper than paying the sign twirler. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the weed sign twirlers? I bet it wouldn't be cheaper than just paying a hippie to wave his arms like that in front of the weed store, because you could probably just pay him in weed. weed. Yeah. Oh. Conversely, who did you have as your worst offender? I didn't really... Like, that beast just decided to be in charge of everything without consulting the whole team. I also had Beast as my choice for a myriad of reasons. The main one was, you don't invite two people to someone else's wedding who do not know the bride or group. That is rude as fuck. Do you think that he was lying to his friends when they said, uh, feels weird, like we don't know anybody. He's like, no, 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 I I told Patsy and she loves you, so it's fine. I don't think he's necessarily lying, but I don't think that's a fair position to put Patsy in. Like, oh, is it cool if I bring two people who you've never met before because they're my friends? So not only does he do that, but then he does the real thing that is the biggest breach of wedding etiquette that happens here. He makes a big announcement at someone else's wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding where someone else announces their engagement? Oh, that sounds pretty cheesy. It is cheesy. It's a shitty thing to do. It it is robbing someone of their moment, and that is absolutely analogous to what Beast does here, where he decides to announce the formation of the team at someone else's wedding. I mean, Steve does a similar thing where he announces the disillusion of the team at someone else's wedding, but nobody is allowing the wedding to belong to Patsy in the way that it should. The other thing that Beast does is he ignores Dolly, twice when she is trying to make her announcement. First, he is interrupted when Warren comes by and he's like, oh no, I'll just hang out with Warren. And then Dolly's like, no, 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 you need to listen to me. He's like, nah, I'll listen to you after I go to bed. And she's like, no, you need to go to a wedding tomorrow. And then they're all happy and everything. But he ignores her twice when she is trying to tell him something, which is shitty and dismissive. And he doesn't just bring two guests to the wedding. He also brings his puppy Sassafras who is a partially housebroken puppy, to a wedding. And he then orders his puppy to attack a supervillain. Bad job, Beast. By a country mile, Beast is the worst offender in this issue. He also takes the whole platter of fried chicken for himself, leaving none for the other guests. 
Well, that's identifiable. <laughs> I know, but it's still shitty, Hub. It is. You're right. Corey, we have touched on this topic some already, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find the most noteworthy? Page 24, wedding attire. I had the same thing, and I called it the same thing. The wedding outfits that everyone is wearing are great. Despite Beast being the worst, he can rock a frilly tuxedo. (laughs) He looks like he is going to an early 80s prom, and I love it. Blue on blue. (laughs) Blue on blue with the fringe coming out of the no doubt crushed velvet jacket that he is wearing. Yeah. Yeah, the sleeve fringe poking out like that. I love that look, and I specifically love that look on him. He looks great. Valkyrie's wedding dress is great. Her braid is great. Moondragon's outfit is exactly the same as it always is, but I still really like her her outfit, and I think she could wear that to a wedding. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's formal. Uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Sea captain. You see, once again, Gargoyle wearing his guys and dolls outfit, which is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I just love how they all dress and how they all clean up. Would have been nice to have seen over Mindy there wearing their suit, you know? Yeah. I also do want to point out, I don't know that we've seen before Iceman's superhero costume when he's not iced up. And I don't think I had realized that it is just a silver Speedo and silver boots. He looks very Rocky from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah. And it is a, a very, to me, funny look. And an especially oddly flashy look for someone who is kind of a low-key accountant type guy for the most part at this point well it's probably how like people that appear outwardly really low-key and and drab probably mostly wear fancy underpants do they i imagine okay (laughs) i don't know like this is my like my thing i'm doing for myself nobody can know about it Oh, Corey, I do notice that you are wearing a brown button-down shirt and some tan pants right now. Wouldn't she like to know what's under it? No, I'm good. Hey, how It's fancy. Yeah, I know. I also mentioned earlier Dolly's fashion turban that she wears to bed. I really enjoy that. I think it is a nice, like, old-timey kind of Gloria Swanson look for her to have, and mm. I appreciated that. In the scene where she is carving the Viking head, Valkyrie has the braided, like, Princess Leia buns going on for her hair, and I really liked that. I I hope that that's a look that comes back more. I think it's a good one for her. Yeah, I made a note of that as well. There is a ton of great fashion in this issue, frankly, and I just don't think we're going to have time to cover it all, but uh, I liked it, and I think it is indicative of a very high quality of art that we saw throughout this issue in general. and. Really just kind of inventive choices. It does seem like the art team is having some fun with some of the specific choices they are making. I always like it when an artist will throw in just like a close-up of an animal for no particular reason. And in this, we get a really nice drawing of some pigs that are uh, hanging out at the farm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's good to see the art team having fun. Speaking of which, would you like to talk about art? Let's. Corey, what was your favorite panel? I had two that were kind of the team shots that I think are kind of obvious choices, but one on page 28, I called it Wedding Crashers, Mm. and that's when Mutant Force is crashing the wedding, literally crashing through the wall. Mm -hmm. 
it's goofy and fun and it also pisses you off because you're you know yeah man they're ruining patsy's time yeah and they're led by buzz baxter too. yeah fuck that guy fuck those guys yeah Ugh. we talked already about the wedding party in the quinjet i really enjoyed that it's just a great panel of them hanging out the casual scenes of them traveling in the quinjet are a lot of fun i think my favorite maybe is just a very small moment but it is moon dragon doing a karate punch to mad dog's face she's you know doing the palm punch and you see his face reverberating and it makes the noise bash that is just really cool looking and really satisfying to see him get punched in the face like that and to see moon dragon being protective of patsy who she does have a kind of mentor relationship with albeit a somewhat contentious one at times yeah like i'll mentor you into doing cool shit and then i'll take all your cool shit away kind of thing yeah you know like mentors do they can't do that well they shouldn't but they do often they can't take away an idea i don't know i just saw an episode of columbo where billy Connolly was a conductor and he was mentoring a young guy who ended up doing all of the work and music for him and then billy Connolly took all his music and said it was his and then he murdered the guy jeez yeah that is terrible mentorship yeah but you know it happens okay touche so I'm saying, don't Moon be a, Dragon could be a lot worse. Don't be a Billy Connolly, Moon Dragon. Is that the guy's name, Billy Connolly, the Scottish uh, actory guy? Took over from Howard Hessman on Head of the Class. I certainly sound Scottish. He certainly does. I also loved, we talked about it already, but Moon Dragon and Drunk Beast interacting on page eight. It is a wonderful introduction of Moon Dragon. You see her standing there looking so arrogant and cool and beast being drunk and doing the like pointing he looks so drunk even without the little boozles around his head it's just really fun Mm -hmm. i I liked that panel a lot i picture him as either a scotch guy or a brandy snifter type guy because he thinks he's professorial Mm. gosh i can see it being either way i honestly see him as being a Mai Tai daiquiri type of guy. I see him drinking tiki drinks. I see him drinking big boat drinks, you know? Just scorpion bowl for me. Yeah. I see him as being like a Hawaiian shirt stoner. And so I see him drinking a lot of like fruity, ostentatious, performative fun drinks. Mm. Any other panels you want to talk about? Just a shout out for the new Defenders assembled. It's like a photo on page 38. You see them all crowded in and kind of mugging for the viewer. and mm-hmm. That was cute. Yeah. I mean, so I talked already about how I feel kind of ripped off that we don't get a really satisfying goodbye to the old defenders. But I feel like in some ways we're also kind of robbed of a satisfying putting the team together for the new defenders. That is a very nice moment. But I don't know. I wish this was either fish or fowl. You know, that uncanny valley between fish and fowl. Yeah. Like in the movie, The Polar Express, where uh, Tom Hanks is like some kind of a bird fish and it freaks everybody out. The uncanny valley between fish and fowl. The fuck are you talking about? I don't know anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You think just because you say Tom Hanks, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, (laughs) okay, that one. It's worked in the past. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? 
I liked the trio of sound effects because they bookend my favorite fight sound effect, which we've talked about many times in the past, but it is the big wet punch noise that is a crunch with a K. That reminds me of the action movie The Raid, which is too much in The Raid because it keeps happening. Yeah, a lot of big, sick, wet punches. Mm -hmm. But in this, we have a smash, crunch, pow. Unfortunately delivered by Damon, it should have been delivered by Patsy, as we already mm. discussed. But the fact that it was happening to Mad Dog was also satisfying. Good point. I enjoyed those. We talked about the bash of Mad Dog getting uh, karate palm punched in the face by Moondragon. I dug that. There is on page 35 the whoop of the shocker falling into a big snowdrift that Iceman has made. I thought that was a pretty fun noise. There's a fathoom that's pretty good of Gargoyle, I don't know, doing whatever weird magic shit he does at the Scorcher. And I dug that. But I think probably my favorite is on page 8 when Moondragon mind blasts Iceman. And I guess the mind bolt makes the noise. Yow! <laughs> I just really like that. It's a yow with three W's. But it doesn't look like it is something Bobby is saying. It looks like that is just the mind bolt just makes the noise. Yow! Oh, what a, what a jerk. Yeah, she's magnificent. Corey, let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. That was more uh, spooky than soccer goal scoring this time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What band names were you able to find in this comic? Well, the first and most obvious... Unfortunately, is already a band name. I wanted to go with Moondragon. Oh, yeah. With an exclamation point. That's already a band. Yeah. What kind of band? Do you know? I don't. I just, I closed the window I was searching and I was so frustrated. I'm sorry. I didn't check. I'm going to assume this isn't a band name already. The most beautiful man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about pluralizing it because we are allowed to do that to the most beautiful men in the world and uh -huh. i think that's an okay band name too but i like the idea of a band being called the most beautiful man in the world i think that will create that situation like with uh molly hatchet or something like that where the band sounds like it is a single person's name where they will think like the lead singer is the person mm -hmm. but it's the whole band is called that but uh i really like the most beautiful man in the world i don't know what kind of music they play what kind of music do you think they play they play probably flute jazz. <laughs> Maybe like uh, flute jazz pop, like a Jethro Tull type thing. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, they probably actually toured with Tull back in the day. Yeah, probably. Ian Anderson took some, took some notes from him. And took some umbrage at not being considered the most beautiful man in the Boy, world. Boy, I don't like that at all. <laughs> That's me, isn't it? Oh, me and Anderson. Most beautiful man in the world, aren't I, man? Oh, Aqualung over here. Core! Cool. Chim Chim Cheroo! I'm Ian Anderson, I am! Pretty good. Thank you. Our accent work just gets better. You wouldn't think it had room to, but yeah, it really has. It's amazing. What other band names do you have? Ah, the one that I'm going with, because it's the only one I have that's not actually a band name, I hope, is 
the jumping fireballs. Oh, jumping fireballs is pretty good. Yeah, there's a lot of fireball bands, but I didn't find a jumping fireballs. No, I like that. I I, I see them as being like a uh, kind of like fifties revival band. Maybe. Exactly. Yep, that's what yeah. I was thinking. Like Bill Haley, uh, Chuck Berry, Jumpin' Gene. Shit, what was Simmons. that? Is it? Gene? I I feel like it might be, but it's not that Gene Simmons. There's Jumpin' Gene somebody who was a, a, a artist from that era, but I mm. can't think of what his last name is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe kind of Stray Catsy sounding. Yeah, I can see that. I think that's pretty good. I had the Super Turkeys. What? <laughs> that's something that uh, Mad Dog <laughs> calls the uh, the Defenders, new uh, and old alike. Man, there is two turkey insults. I wish we had Bozone for this because I love it when somebody gets called a turkey. You I think do. That that's like hilarious. your favorite thing. It is. It just cracks me up. Yeah, it's pretty good. So, okay, of the names that we have, what do you think is the best one? Oh, shit. We got the most beautiful man in the world. We got <laughs> the jumping fireballs. And uh-huh. We have the super turkeys. Whew. I feel like the most beautiful man in the world is probably going to be the most, like, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but, like, it's going to probably elicit the most reaction. Reaction. Yeah. So maybe we should go with that. I'm good with that. All right. Yeah, most beautiful man in the world it is. Yeah, the, what did we decide it was? Kenny G type stuff? No, no, Jethro Tull. Don't oh. mix up Kenny G and Jethro Tull. Yeah, one of them is a alto, one of them's a regular. <laughs> okay, Wait, no, a first saxophone. Of all, Kenny, Kenny G not is a, a soprano saxophone. There's no altos involved. Is there an alto saxophone, though? Yeah, that's that an like alto a reg- saxophone. That's one. the regular kind. That's the regular yeah. one. Yeah, I know music stuff. Yeah, well, except for that you thought that Kenny G played an alto sax. Well, I mean, he was influenced heavily by Ian Anderson. A lot of people don't know that. Did Ian Anderson play an alto flute? Oi! I don't know. I'll play a kind of flute you got. Well, oh, then, it's me, Ian Anderson, most beautiful man in the world. Right. Yeah. Boo! I'm the most beautiful man in the world. Do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> Make it renaissance it's got to end in a toot toot. <laughs> yep. Corey, mm. despite the fact that he can never defend us again, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, Hulk took a page from uh, Steve slash the Tribunal's playbook in this one. It's the tough and uncomfortable work of assessing when a relationship is not working and making a change. Wow. Easier said than done. But uh, you stay together, the world will be destroyed. Probably best to uh, do something different. Yeah, but it's going to mean an uncomfortable conversation. Oh, I know. I'm destroying the world. Oh, yeah, me too. (laughs) For, I don't know, 10 years or so. Eventually, the world will give you an opening. <laughs> it, 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 it takes a minute, but yeah, if you just stick it out. I think that is an excellent rule for the Hulk to learn, uh, even if it is sometimes difficult advice to follow. Yep. I had the Hulk's rule being, don't make other people's weddings about you. Oh, that is a good one. You, you see everybody doing that in this issue, and I'm, I'm against it. I mean... I myself, like, when Lisa and I got married, we eloped. Uh, I believe your wedding was also just a courthouse wedding. Yeah, you were there. You were my witness. Yeah. But if people do want to have a big wedding, you should let them have that wedding be about them. Have it on their terms. 
And yeah, don't go making big announcements at someone else's wedding. It's not cool. It's not cool at all. It's like C-3PO said when he caught R2-D2 smoking. Oh, that isn't cool, and it isn't grown up at all. R2, do you really think I don't have a heart? Says the answer. Yeah, yeah I think he says... Sound deep. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the Hulk's rules. Don't go making other people's weddings about you. Don't do it. It's not cool. And it isn't grown up at all. Oi! Oi! Oi, Anderson! And also, no! Don't make all the people's weddings about you! Even if you're the most beautiful man in the world! Like me! Ian Anderson! Chim Chim Chiroo! He just flew off. That's him playing the flute. It's <laughs> a good one. Thanks. Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, November, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So, Wong and Steve, as they often do when it's time to unwind after a hard day of doing stuff, will... Enjoy some Jamaican incense, get a big bowl of popcorn, sit down in front of the boob tube, and watch whatever's on. Hmm. I think they call it that because that was what they called it in the 70s and 80s. The boob tube? Yeah, because it turns you into a boob. Not like a breast, but like a, like, I think maybe one of those like Ecuadorian birds with the funny feet. Oh, a blue-footed booby? Yeah. They have a very elaborate mating dance. That they do. I don't think that generally happens when you sit on the couch too long watching television. No, it doesn't. You do an elaborate mating dance. Yeah. So my, well, sometimes my Wong isn't that good, which is why I'm distracting us with all the bird <laughs> talk. But anyway, Wong and Steve decided, along with 100 million other Americans, whoa, on November 20th to watch the ABC movie The Day After. Oh. About nuclear war. Did you see any of that when you were a kid i did not but my older sister did like she snuck downstairs while my parents were watching it or something yeah wicked, freaked her out wicked fucking scary yeah it made my new hampshire come out i said wicked i saw yeah i rather heard so i i also saw you saying it oh yeah but you saw our, our listeners didn't thank you for the disambiguation <laughs> here to help so yeah that freaked Stephen wong out and Steve thought to himself, well, I've, I've got to take action. Oh, did he think it was his fault for not breaking up the Defenders soon enough? No, but that is why on, because uh, the timelines get all weird. Oh, right. But right. Uh, that is why on November 23rd, he went to the conference where the U.S. and the Soviet Union were having their talks about disarmament mm-hmm. and was like, I'm going to help. Oh, and, no. Uh, you know how we talked about before him just assuming he knows languages? Yeah. Because you can pick stuff up through the ethers or whatever. How hard can it be? I see children speaking Italian all the time. You're telling me I'm smarter than a child. They poop in their diapers. Exactly. Probably. Exactly. So, he kind of ethereals into the conference and, and tries to address the Soviet delegation and ends up saying, I don't know, some stuff about goats or whatever's really insulting. Mm. You know, on accident. Sure. They got mad and they left. Oh, that's too bad. So, he ruined the nuclear uh, disarmament talks. <sighs> nice job, Steve. I bet Steve was pretty bummed out about that. Yeah. He was also pretty bummed out about not being able to be a defender anymore. So that's why Wong decided he was going to try to cheer his buddy Steve up. See, 
A few days ago, he uh, had seen Steve reading the newspaper, and Steve was just giggling, and uh, Wong was like, Oh, what are you reading, Steve? And Steve's like, Oh, it's my, my favorite uh, comic book strip. It's the political humor of Doonesbury. I can't get enough of it. It's so sophisticated, just like me. And so Wong is like, you know, Steve seems really down lately. I didn't know he liked Doonesbury. Seems, seems a little bit weird. That's not generally the kind of humor he enjoys. But Wong was like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going to cheer him up. I, I actually just saw... I'm not normally a big fan of musical theater, I don't think. I'm pretty sure that's Aqualad, not me that's a fan of musical theater. But uh, <laughs> there's a new big Broadway musical based on Doonesbury that's written by Gary Trudeau. What? Yeah, he did the book and lyrics for uh, Doonesbury the Musical. He took two years off of working on the Doonesbury comic strips to do it. Oh, shit. And so he bought tickets, and he, he said, Steve, you know what? I am taking you to a musical based on your favorite comic strip. And Steve got so excited. They went out to the show, and uh, as they got in front of the marquee, Wong was like, here we are. And Steve looked up and saw it said, Doonesbury the Musical, and he was like, oh, oh, yes, very exciting. Doonesbury, I do love that political humor. So sophisticated, just like me, Steve. And uh, Wong is like, it seems like an odd reaction, but okay. Uh, you can take your overcoat off. And Steve was like, oh, no, 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 I, I'm just fine. Um, I'll just leave it on a bit chilly in here. Eventually, halfway through the performance, uh, Steve did get it too hot and very sheepishly removed his overcoat. And you saw that he was wearing a big T-shirt that said, Fred Bassett forever. With a picture of Fred Bassett on it. Because that's his real favorite comic strip. He was just embarrassed, wanted to look more sophisticated than oh, he was. No. Corey, have you ever read a Fred Bassett comic strip? I don't know. It's about a Bassett hound named Fred Bassett. And I can't find where the jokes are in it. Wow. I've read a bunch. I literally cannot find where it is supposed to be funny. Is it the way that the uh, the characters are drawn? Like, like you know how sometimes when you're a kid, Garfield's expressions could just elicit peals of laughter, but now they don't. No, like, like he's the dog isn't sar like you see his thoughts, but he's he's not sarcastic or acerbic in any way. And Does he like lasagna? No, that's the thing. I don't even know what the point of this is. Does he hate Mondays? He's ambivalent about Mondays. That sounds kind of bad. It's not good, but Steve loves it. Um, I'll show you some Fred Bassett comic strips later, and we can try to find the jokes. Doesn't that sound like a good time? That sounds fun. Yeah. And so Wong was very gentle with Steve. He's like, Steve, you don't have to pretend. If you like Fred Bassett, I don't think they're probably going to make a Fred Bassett musical. And Steve's like, well, they should. So he was overall not super impressed with the Doonesbury musical. But there was one standout that he really did enjoy about it. He was like, Whoever it is that is playing that, uh, Mark Slackmire, he is going to be a big star. I see wonderful things on the horizon for him. And in his own way, Steve was right. Because Mark Slackmire was played by none other than Mark Lynn Baker, who went on to star in Perfect Strangers as Cousin Larry. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Yep. And that's the Wong doings that Wong was doing. <laughs> 
Wow. Seeing the burgeoning career of a young cousin Larry because Steve was too embarrassed to admit that he was a huge Fred Bassett fan. Dang. Yeah. What a tangled web. Indeed. Well, Corey, I had a great time talking with you about this comic book. Me too. I'm going to miss the Defenders, but I'm looking forward to the new Defenders. I know there is some really great stuff that is coming up in this title. I remember the new Defenders run as being a pretty fun one, but I don't remember virtually any of the details, so uh, should be a good time. That's unlike you. I know. All right. I just shrugged. We will see. No, I did just shrug. We don't, we don't have to wait that out. It's confirmed. No, we'll see. I've checked we'll see every it. possible past, and in all of them, I just shrug. Okay, Steve, whatever. Fred Bassett! Uh, forever. Fred Bassett forever! I don't know why his voice just broke. Well, it's emotional. It's very emotional. Oh, I'm going to miss that goof. I'm going to miss him, too. I'm going to miss the Hulk, too. I'm going to miss Namor. Like, I know they haven't always been part of the team, but I feel like the team has always had one of them. Usually it's had the Hulk, at least. But, uh, yeah, to have none of the original three. Or four, if we're counting Silver Surfer, which, let's face it, I'm not. No, he's usually off. Doing some pre-Boaz anthropology and a mountain of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, one bump after another. Yep. We'll be back next week to talk some new Titans. I'm actually looking forward to that storyline. We're going to see uh, Tim Drake being trained as the new Robin. That should be pretty fun. Yeah, probably learn about some Clive Barker. Probably. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on the socials media, doing a thing, saying a thing, feeling the groove. You know how you were talking about the boob tube earlier? Yeah. There was a sketch comedy movie called The Groove Tube. Whoa. That wasn't very good, but it had a picture of a gorilla on the front. That's nice. That is nice. Like a gorilla on the front of a thing. You know, there was a whole period where uh, if you wanted to boost comic sales, you'd just put a picture of a gorilla on the front. That was like the rule that uh, Silver Age DC Comics went by for a very long time. People just loved gorillas. Really? Yeah. I don't think people ever stopped loving gorillas. I think marketing people just forgot that people still love gorillas. Mm-hmm. We should put gorillas on more things. Sure. You know where we should put a gorilla? Hmm. In the White House. Hmm. All I'm saying is we should probably elect a gorilla president. It'd be fun. Uh-huh. All right. If you can't find us on the internet, though, there is one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. That's where we'll be. That's where we've always been. Corey, what are you going to be doing inside people's hearts this week? I don't know. It's been really nice outside. I, I, I'm probably going to tidy up the heart patio and fire up the barbecue. Corey, it's supposed to be over 100 degrees for each of the next four days. Oh, okay. So I will probably fire up the heart AC. Ah, and barbecue. No. They'll cancel each other out. It's not safe to barbecue inside. Yeah. You can make some, like, uh... I'm going to use an air fryer. Oh, that's, that's a good time. That's what? tiny. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's combined with your toaster oven. Yeah, yeah, it was a gift from you. Yeah, that's nice. It's a pretty good gift. Thank you. Yeah. 
I'm going to be making uh, some burritos, in uh, air fried burritos. Oh. They're amazing. I don't think I've ever had an air fried burrito. Yeah, it's not quite like a chimichanga. Like, it doesn't have the deep fried thing. Mm -hmm. But if you put a little butter on the outside of the tortilla. It still gets a little bit of a crunch. Yeah, blistered, crunchy deliciousness. Well, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, sounds like a nice time. I think I'm going to be just sitting there thinking about the fact that Columbo solved a murder at a rave. I watched the whole episode and I still just can't wrap my mind around the idea. You know how he figured out uh, who the murderer was? Mm. There weren't enough koi fish inside the dance floor. Mm. Yeah. The dance floor at the rave had a bunch of koi fish in it, but uh, they couldn't have enough koi fish in this one section of the dance floor because they didn't have enough water to keep the koi fish in because they had uh, when they constructed the club, they had to bury a guy under there. That's complicated. That's Columbo for you. That's true. He was at a rave. He wore a boa at one point because the lady was all high and dancing around and put a boa on him. That sounds pretty cute. I've been to a bunch of raves. Nobody was wearing boas at them, though. You ever been to a rave where people were wearing feather boas? No, I just went to one and it wasn't that good. It wasn't for me. No. Not enough feather boas. Yeah. That was the problem. Yeah. If you would like to support the show, and why wouldn't you? Find entertainment like this? You can check out patreon.com slash ttwasteland and donate if you are so moved. If you do, there's a whole bunch of extra bonus material up that is exclusive to our donors, and uh, I would really appreciate it because it is through those donations that we are able to keep doing the show. So uh, if, if you like listening to the show and uh, you're in a position where you can, eh, please consider donating. If that's not possible, send all your feather boas to... I'm good on feather boas. You're going to need those to open your own rave. But if you're going to murder somebody at that rave, make sure you bring enough koi fish. Because otherwise, you'll get arrested, probably not by Columbo, but uh, I think Angela Lansbury is still alive, so maybe uh, Jessica... Parker. That was... That's not Jessica Parker. <laughs> What was Jessica's last name? Alba. Corey, you're not helping. Dark and Angel's going to show up I... and be <laughs> so mad at you. Those koi fish need more water. Why are you murdering people? Right. I'm Jessica Alba. <laughs> the darkest of angels. That's how she sounds. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a very brilliant good. Your impression. impressions are amazing. Yeah. If you <laughs> would like Hub to do impressions for you. I'm Jessica Alba. Chim Chim Cheru. Oi. Oi. The Dark Angel. <laughs> Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, how are they going to do that? Well, they could leave a review for the show, or they could tell somebody about the show that they know. Who could they tell? They could tell a friend. Corey, could they tell Jessica Alba? <laughs> what? Yes. Well, I don't know. That might be hard. It's kind of hard to reach, I imagine. Tell you what, just write a review that says, Chim Chim Cheru, Jessica Alba should listen to this show. Even though it's a bit strong for you. <laughs> Jessica Alba was the lead singer of the band Venom, right? They're not going to. They're do, not going to do Do we talk that? about that all the time? Yeah, probably. Yep. Five stars. Yeah. As the amount of stars, that would be nice for you to leave. Sure. If you were in a position to leave stars. 
Corey, was Jessica Alba the lead singer of the band Venom? I do not know the name of that guy, but it was not. Not Jessica, Jessica Alba. Alba. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Did Venom have any songs called Chim Chim Cheru? No, the only one I know is Buried Alive. Oh, that next song's going to rip your balls off. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. Hired will I am for a brief period of time to work with you? I uh, no, no, to be a hologram, to be the creative director or something. Corey, did they think that he was a hologram at the time? Had they just seen him on the 2000 election results and thought that he was a hologram man and then would be good at technology? It's possible. Fucking intel. What is the dude with the, the like the sunglasses and the long hair in that band do? Okay, are we talking Applebee app or Taboo? Taboo. I don't know. I don't understand his function. He doesn't appear to... I have only seen, like, maybe one of their videos, mm. but I don't know what if, if he just... He just sort of, like, like kind of moves his head around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does look cool when he moves his head around because yeah. he's got that long hair. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, maybe he's their choreographer. They just let him be in the show. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, oh. Does he rap? Probably. Oh. Man, I don't know. We gotta learn more about the We don't know a ton about the Black Eyed Peas, that's true. What a shame. I, I mean, basically, my knowledge of the Black Eyed Peas is what the song Let's Get It Started in Here was originally called, mm -hmm. and that time Fergie peed her pants on stage. I didn't know about that one. That sounds embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, maybe this part of this is on uh, that taboo guy, because I think it was... His idea that the choreography include her constantly walking around with a glass of warm water over her hand. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> just asking for it. it y you know, yeah, they really should have rethought that. But maybe he was upset that he never got to rap. As I said, there's a lot I don't know about the Black Eyed Peas. Mm. You ready? Yes. What about doing a uh, a live show where you don't have to edit it? That sounds fun. Wouldn't, the not editing Wouldn't part. be good. No. But... <laughs> It'd be less work. It would be. Uh, it's mostly just going to be me going, um... <laughs> <laughs>